and welcome to Inside Medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, practicing physician, and really just a geek at heart who enjoys devouring the latest medical research. The Inside Medicine podcast is designed to give you a perspective by interviewing expert clinicians and renowned scientists to discuss new data in plain English to educate and inspire you to take meaningful and scientifically credible steps to improve your durability and resilience. In each episode, we will hear from one of the doctors in the practice in conversation with a guest from our curated network of experts. Today's guest is nutritional psychiatrist, Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Naidu founded and directs the nation's first hospital-based nutritional psychiatry service at Massachusetts General Hospital. She is also the author of This Is Your Brain on Food. Hosting today's conversation is Dr. Kelly Fraden, our New York-based pediatrician. She speaks with Dr. Naidu about how different foods can affect sleep, depression, and overall mental health. Without further ado, Dr. Kelly Fraden. Hi, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to talk with you. I am too, Kelly. Thanks so much for inviting me. Maybe we could start simply. I know that a lot of people who might be listening are new to the term nutritional psychiatry. So what is this new field and how would you describe how it is advancing how we care for people's mental health? That's a great question. You know, the term nutritional psychiatry is very nascent. Um, It's one that has been brought forward more recently. And so the definition is nutritional psychiatry's use of healthy whole foods and nutrients to improve our mental well-being. And really, the way that I think about it and the way that this field is coming forward is as a complement to other forms of treatment. So some may be taking medication, but really the power of nutritional psychiatry is at the end of our fork because we can make decisions about how we eat, uh, you know, every single day, every single meal. And part of it is also being brought forward by the emerging cutting-edge research in the gut microbiome and gut-brain axis. So... In the most basic sense, maybe you could explain how diet and mood are connected. How do we think about that? You know, the best way to explain the food-mood connection or the the gut-brain axis or this, this connection in nutritional psychiatry is through understanding that there is a connection between the gut and the brain because the gut and brain originate from the same exact cells in the embryo. Then these cells divide up and form these two organs in the body and remain connected by the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, which runs from the um, brain to the gut. And I like to call a two-way superhighway, allowing for the bidirectional chemical messages being transmitted back and forth between the brain and gut and the gut and the brain. So there's that connection that's going on all the time. And then, you know, people know about medications like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Zoloft or Prozac, to name a few. And yet, you know, 90 to 95% of the serotonin and the receptors are in the gut. So it makes sense that, you know, there is this connection as well. The, the other thing I like to talk about or mention in the gut microbiome is that, you know, most, about 70% of our immunity is in the gut. So it's, it's just important for us to be eating a certain way, not just for our mental well-being, but for our physical well-being, especially now. And I think a simple way to understand this is that, you know, when, you, when you're eating a healthier choice meal, um, the breakdown products of our digestion 
form positive substances in the gut. When we're eating that fast food, sort of junk food, if we're going through the drive through all the time, then the breakdown products are going to be more toxic in the gut microbiome. And that's a, a simple way just to put that connection together. Yes. Uh, in pediatrics, a common refrain that we say is that children need to feed their bugs, which, you know, is how we try to talk to preschoolers about, you know, eat your vegetables and feed those healthy bacteria in your body because that's their food source and they do so much good for your health. If they fed well, right? If they fed with candy and, and ice cream, the bad bugs down there do well. So it's, it's understanding that balance for children and for adults. You know, I'm wondering when you're working with individuals and families, I know the Western diet in general can undermine your efforts at promoting mental health, but are there things that people are doing wrong in terms of their diet in, and supporting their mental well-being? One of the ways I like to frame this is that it's, it's, it's less about right and wrong, but more about what movements we can make forward. And identifying and bringing to awareness things like, you know, some habits people may have picked up during the pandemic, which are maybe not so great, and they would like to let go of. That's a good place to start. But I think that the gap, Kelly, is that many people associate, you know, the things that I'm going to mention, they associate these foods with type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, hypertension, obesity, but actually no one's putting it together with mental well-being. And so the added and refined sugars, unfortunately, worsen depression, they kick up anxiety and, and create more, more issues. Processed, ultra-processed junk foods are not great because the ingredients they contain are just um, also processed, but they stabilizers, they colorants, they dyes, they preservatives. And then there are the processed vegetable oils, which are often what fast food restaurants use to produce because they're less expensive and they are pro-inflammatory. And one of the other categories is artificial sweetness. So some people feel, well, let me try to cut back on sugar. And, you know, those sugar-free items and even sugar-free, or, or I should say diet sodas, actually contain artificial sweetness. They're disruptive to the gut microbes, but they also worsen many symptoms of mental health. So those are some starting points, just to not so much to, to sort of feel badly about ourselves, but to understand that these are things in our environment things we may be eating and not be realizing that they're worsening our mental health. And it's just a first understanding, even if in one of those things, maybe one of those habits that you picked up, maybe start there to, to try to walk back from it or think how you can change it. When you work with families who are struggling with mental health, how do you balance, how do you talk to them about balancing making healthy choices with feeling like you have to be very vigilant about your diet or that you know, that sort of all or nothing thinking about your diet. That's exactly what I try to dissuade in them. It's it's not about right and wrong or, you know, everything is bad or it really the polar the polarization that I think happens with the diet wars that go on in the media and, and in the country in general. And I think that just speaking to them openly about how to eat, how to eat healthy, uh, using positive words to explain concepts to them. And I guess having them be less fixated on, say, the calories or I, I have them really look at the quality of the food, understand how to negotiate the supermarket, understand what a healthy meal is for the whole family while not compromising taste, you know, making it fun for the children to be part of the, say, diversity of plants is consistently shown to help the gut microbiome. So taking the children, helping them pick out those colorful vegetables, you know, feeling it, 
the texture of these things, the colors, the vibrancy, engaging them in that they're part of that experience becomes important so that they almost in a very natural way learning what healthy whole foods are. So creating that balance between a a healthy, colorful vegetable where we talk about the color of the rainbows versus, you know, the color of the rainbows in a cereal is obviously quite different. Yes, I think it's important that tone that you set about being positive about the benefits you can get from your food and and maybe the context of understanding that there's room for most foods in a well-rounded diet. Like, you know, if your favorite food is one that's on the naughty list, that doesn't mean you never have to have it again, that you just have to be mindful about the balance and your choices. And I, I like what you said, Kelly, about setting the tone because that's exactly it incorporate healthy habits which become part of the family lifestyle as a whole rather than this is right this is wrong um, having things that that kids love or, the, or parents love once in a while but also trying to eat healthy the rest of the time like the 80 20 year old people talk about is appropriate you know we have to live our lives we want to enjoy all things i think that when the diet culture argument comes forward it becomes you know let, let's give up this entire food group you know i'd rather people understand uh, the benefits of certain food groups, like the benefit of fiber from vegetables, colorful vegetables, fruit, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, healthy whole grains, because that's what nurtures those gut microbes or leafy greens. Leafy greens have are very rich in folate, and low levels of folate associated with depression. So having, you know, making fun things like spinach chips in the oven rather than pretzels or popcorn or potato chips can be a fun experience if it's incorporated into the family family lifestyle. And it's not a difficult recipe. It's three ingredients. It's 20 minutes in the oven. And it can be fun if it's sort of part of the dialogue. And I think that, in my experience, is one of the ways to start changing that conversation around diet culture, feeling bad about, you know, eating something on a particular day. I always say to everyone, we can always course correct at the next meal or the next snack. So, you know, live your life and sort of move on from what you perceive to be that not so great day or not so great meal. Yes. When I ask parents at the well visits with their children to tell me about the diet, I always encourage them to think about it over a week or a month because we all have days that are maybe off days and they don't matter in the long run. It's more about the general trends and the and the overall choices. Yeah, it was perfect. Right. You know, I think you had published an article in the Frontiers of Psychiatry about anxiety as a metabolic disease. And that caught the attention of some of my partners because, you know, we're always looking for sort of innovative thinking about approaching whole person ways to address disease rather than just always rushing to a test or a medicine. So maybe you could explain what you meant by anxiety being metabolic in nature. Sure. So, you know, more and more, just like the missing conversation in the room when we see a doctor is our mental health. You know, we'll talk about a family history of diabetes or hypertension or gaining weight during COVID, but we're not really talking about our mental health. I think that one of the things COVID did really bring forward with the force is the pre-existing conditions that led to worsening outcomes in COVID and even COVID survivors. And where that interacts with mental health is that not only do we now know that individuals who survived a COVID infection have worsening symptoms of mental health, it also interacts with the rest of their physical health, specifically their metabolic health. And 
We also know, and have, it's been shown through research, that more and more the, the thinking around inflammation being a basis for things like depression, anxiety, cognitive issues, and more is coming forward. How this comes together is that our metabolic health, how we're eating, how those, that food is interacting, not just with our gut microbiome, but with our blood sugar levels, our metabolic profile in general is so much more important than we've known before. And so I really am starting to rethink how we are looking at this in psychiatry because the other aspect of psychiatry where this interfaces and, and one of the main reasons that I felt compelled to pursue the study of nutrition and I knew that medication, certain medications were very life-saving for my patients with severe mental illness who were losing touch with reality, maybe they had manic episodes, but some of those medications had really significant impacts on the metabolic profile. So how did I find that balance? It, it's all of those factors coming together and then having us think, how do we look at this out of the box? And what can we do to correct how we're eating, what we're doing, simple changes that become part of your lifestyle eventually. You know, you don't, I, I've learned the hard way that you cannot give someone a list of 10 things to do because it's overwhelming, you know. So rather work on starting to learn how to make at least one healthy meal that you can adapt and the whole family can eat and has really healthy whole foods in it is one place to start to change that conversation around food. So some of it is just having that discussion. So along those lines, maybe we could talk about just a couple of the most common mood disorders that you mentioned in your book. So starting, say, with the anxiety. If somebody listening, their family's been under a lot of stress during the pandemic and they're feeling the residual anxiety, what, what might be a small change they could make in their diet to, to help? Absolutely. So in addition to starting to cut back on those foods that you sort of want to identify as problematic for anxiety, adding refined sugars worsen anxiety, artificial sweeteners, including stevia, actually worsen anxiety studies shows. So things that they can add in are things like starting off with those fiber-rich vegetables because for a few reasons. I want people to think about, you know, how they feel when they eat a sugary donut versus an actual plate of crudite or chopped veggies and hummus. The way that the food breaks down in their body is important for us to understand because a complex carbohydrate like a veggie is very different from a simple carb like a donut. It breaks down more slowly, it's rich in fiber, nutrients, vitamins, and your blood sugar is more even on an even keel and more even over time. For healthy whole foods, uh, leafy greens, um, things like dark, extra dark, uh, natural chocolate actually have been shown to help stress as well, things like blueberries and berries, spices like turmeric with a pinch of black pepper, all actually help with anxiety over time. None of these work overnight or immediately, but when you start to incorporate them slowly and steadily in your diet, they will work over time. And what about insomnia or sleep difficulty? Because I know the pandemic has disrupted a lot of family routines. And sometimes, you know, the kids have come into bed and the sleep habits have deteriorated. And now when parents are trying to promote their mental health, promoting the sleep is such a core part of that. So they're good foods to offer children to help promote their sleep? So what some of the foods that I like are the sort of melatonin-rich foods. Uh, my, my tip around this is having a breakfast for dinner because eggs are actually rich in melatonin. So if, if the family does eat eggs, I prefer pastured eggs if it's possible. 
and you know making an omelet for dinner uh, making making that type of dish for dinner with some added veggies you know can add to that actually can make a dish or foods that are rich in melatonin helpful to almost ease the body into sleep for the evening and then there's some very specific foods uh, such as uh, tart cherries that help because they've been shown in research to help insomnia besides of course what you and i know as physicians you know good sleep hygiene is where it starts in not having caffeinated beverages you know slowing the body down so that you are you know getting ready to sleep in the evening including foods like omega-3 uh, fatty acids found in things like sockeye salmon as well as sardines or anchovies you know are things that can promote or help sleep and tryptophan rich foods uh, as well things like chickpeas actually uh, have been found to be helpful for adults things like chamomile tea and uh, again you know leaning into things like the, like the tart cherries is also a good one and there's melatonin rich foods as well. If you are getting the juice, you know, I would just caution you to uh, make sure that uh, it, there isn't a ton of added sugar in the juice. The way that I like to think about adding refined sugars is that people just need to understand food labels a little bit. So, you know, the sugar in a piece of fruit is natural and it's part of the fruit and it comes with fiber, nutrients and vitamins. Whereas a lot of our regular food just has in fact, a lot of our savory food has added sugar. That's often what, what trips people up, like ketchup, pasta sauce, salad dressings, things like that. So what I'd rather share with people is look at the food labels, understand what the added sugars are. And, you know, it's very hard for people to avoid processed foods, but they can actually find the store-bought pasta sauce with less sugar. Also teach them about the fact that there are 200 other names for sugar on food labels. So brown rice syrup is one that, trips people up all the time because they they have heard that brown rice is a healthier option. But brown rice syrup is sugar. I tell you, I, I have spent hours as a mom reading food labels because in products like bread or granola bars or yogurt, even if they're marketed as being healthy and whole grain, you know, they they can often have five or 10 grams of added sugar per serving, which I try to stick under 20 grams of added sugar a day for kids, but it is a challenging goal. And often we exceed it in my family. So it's a challenging goal. But you know, I like hearing that because it's a nice sort of guideline for people to have when they purchase foods. Along the lines of shopping and being a savvy consumer, I'd love to hear when you do recommend supplements for your for your patients, how, how do you recommend they get them? Because sometimes I worry people go online and they may get products that haven't been stored appropriately or they may not be uh, reputable brands. So where can consumers go to find like the safest, best quality supplements? You know, supplements is a tough one because I really do think that we do need to supplement our diet because our diets are just not perfect despite how hard we try and part that is environmental, genetics, pollution, stress, so many different factors, location, like the far northeast, many people are deficient in vitamin D and may not know it. So supplementation I've come and grown to understand is important. However, the supplement industry, as you know, is not regulated by the FDA. So people may be paying a very large amount of money and may not have a well-vetted or a, a great product. 
So my guidelines are about that, especially to speak to their physician. So no one should just go out and supplement something without checking the level if needed, especially not for a child. And some of the things I think are worth looking at for mental health are omega-3 fatty acids because they've been shown to be positive for so many mental health conditions and they have other physical benefits. But if someone doesn't consume seafood, uh, or is vegetarian or vegan, there are also alkaloid supplements they can use. So finding a reputable brand, if you're getting it online, it really has to be a, a well-vetted source. And then the other one for mental health is magnesium. Magnesium is, is quite important in terms of supplementation. So, you know, find out as much information, go through your doctor. If you're buying it online after you hear from your doctor or go to a pharmacy, you know, look at the brands they have, speak to the pharmacist, have a conversation about it. Get as much information before you make that choice. Okay. I'd love to ask you just one more question, which is about family members who may be having depression or or quite free, frequently in pediatrics, we see women postnatally having baby blues or tough time, you know, when they have a newborn. So are there foods we should consider recommending for people during those times? You know, with postnatal depression, one of the things you want to be super careful about is that it's not worsening and that the woman is not sort of moving beyond baby blues into an actual deep depression because one of the things that can happen and I've seen is that the mom can develop postpartum psychosis and that can be very dangerous to both herself, the child and the family. The foods that apply to helping depression that are rich in omega-3 fatty acids, um, that are those whole healthy foods like building up the gut microbes, colorful rainbow of vegetables, leafy greens, things like extra dark chocolate, adding in spices like turmeric with a pinch of black pepper have a good amount of evidence in depression. Uh, saffron actually has a good amount of evidence in trials of depression, but that's one as well that you might want to look at a supplement because you simply don't cook with enough saffron. Even adding in fermented foods into her diet, kimchi, kombucha, kefir, tempeh, miso, you know, can help because again, taking care of the gut microbiome becomes important. So those are some guidelines I would give her and, you know, to be in touch with a clinician, to have a therapist and make sure that her doctor knows how she's feeling. I totally agree. The right help can make all the difference during that period. And it's it's just essential to take good care of the mom, especially when the baby's depending on her. I know that many of the families in our practice will embrace these ideas as holistic ways to support their family members during stressful times. So I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Of course, of course. I'm happy to do it. Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine and our guest, Dr. Nadu. I'm certainly interested in applying food as both medicine and Epicurean pleasures. I hope you feel a little smarter and better informed now that you've listened to this interview. In just a few weeks, we'll be interviewing Dr. Grant Lippman on the topic of wilderness medicine. We hope to see you then.